Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, $95 billion of foreign aid. President Biden urges House Republicans to approve it, but one representative calls it tone deaf. Find out why. New York and surrounding areas under a thick blanket of snow. What locals and visitors have to say about it, Chris Spears takes us there. Republicans demanding a transcript of President Biden's interview with the special counsel, how the White House is responding, and a new poll reveals Americans' thoughts about Biden's classified documents case. Iris Tao in D.C. Georgia's governor prepares to assist Texas in its border standoff with the federal government. Meanwhile, Republicans in D.C. are trying to give states more power to defend themselves. Arian Pazdar has the update. The latest on negotiations for a hostage and ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas. That's while Israel Defense Forces are preparing to advance into Rafah. And a new TikTok trend getting fired. Not as dangerous as the choking challenge, but dangerous nevertheless. We explain why. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. With 70 votes in favor and 29 against, the Senate today passing the security supplemental package the White House requested late last year. The bill includes $95 billion in foreign aid and no border security measures. NTD's Luis Martinez has the details. After four months of private negotiations, the Senate approved early this Tuesday morning a $95 billion package. The foreign aid package was approved by the Senate with the support of 22 Senate Republicans. This despite the opposition shown by former President Donald Trump and Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer during a press conference touted the bill's passage in the Senate. We can say it's been worth it. Today we witnessed one of the most historic and consequential bills passed the Senate. The Senate bill would see over $60 billion of aid go to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, and over $4 billion to Taiwan and U.S. partners in the Indo-Pacific to deter Chinese aggression. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky took to social media to thank the U.S. Senate. The Senate has just voted to continue the support of our country and our warriors. This is a decision that we have worked very hard for, a decision that has been awaited not only by us, but by many other nations, particularly in Europe. Who spoke with Republican Congressman Keith Self from Texas, he did not share the Ukrainian president's optimism. How tone deaf do you have to be to pull the most important domestic issue out of a bill and send it to the House with only Ukraine and Israel on it. President Biden urged House Republicans to immediately put the foreign aid package to a vote, despite the lack of border security provisions. For Republicans in Congress who think they can oppose funding for Ukraine and not be held accountable, history is watching. The $95 billion foreign aid package now faces an uphill battle in the House. Speaker Mike Johnson is now the gatekeeper who will determine whether this bill, as approved by the Senate, will ever see the House floor. Reporting from our nation's capital, Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. 
A winter storm dumped snow on New York City and other parts of the Northeast today. The weather knocked out power and disrupted travel. More than six inches of snow was reported across the region. It could be the biggest snowfall for New York City in more than two years. NTD's Chris Spears was in Central Park earlier today. Winter was back with a vengeance in the New York metro area after a spate of mild weather in the past week. Uh, stretching from the, just north of Philadelphia to south of Boston, we had about six to eight inches of snow, 21 inches of snow in select areas. The snow was coming down at about one to three inches per hour. So if you went out and cleaned off your car, the part where you started cleaning your car could have been covered a little bit with snow by the time you finished. The snow is thick, heavy snow. So when it gets on the branches, it was taking down power lines and we saw over 100,000 power outages, over 1,000 flights canceled, and hundreds of car accidents and serious driving conditions earlier this morning. But it did create some beautiful scenery here in Central Park. Let's hear what people in the park had to say about it earlier today. Believe it, I think it's terrific. They should come. It feels so good to go sledding again because I thought this would be useless. I love it. I'm so excited. I love the snow. I don't love the snow, but, it, it, <laughs> but I'm happy to see that it's snowing. Very scenic. Uh, a bit of a concern that we've got to fly back to the UK later on today, but I think you guys clear the snow a lot better than what we do in the UK. We only came for four days, and we, when we found out it was snowing today, it's like, wow! <laughs> Have you seen the snow in New York City? No, first time. Ah. So I feel pretty fortunate, yeah. Great. What are you guys doing today? Uh, we're looking around Central Park, we're going to go on the High Line, and then we're going to see the Brooklyn Nets tonight. The storm wrapped up in the late afternoon today in most places. If you're going out tonight, be careful, though, because with the windshield, it could be freezing uh, with the roads wet and everything. So just try to stay home if you can. This is NTD's Chris Beers reporting from New York City. House Republicans demanding transparency into President Biden's interviews with the special counsel. What they also want is for the special counsel himself to testify about Biden's mental acuity. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. The report, which called out President Biden's, quote, poor memory, but also reasoned against prosecuting President Biden for his handling of classified documents, is now prompting Republicans in Congress to demand more answers. Three House committee chairs are now giving the Justice Department until next Monday to turn over a transcript of Biden's interview with special counsel Robert Hur, along with any recordings related to it. Republicans say it's needed for their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, adding that they want to find out if any of the classified documents that Biden retained were actually related to any of the foreign country that his family was allegedly doing business with. And another reason they say is that they want to see if the Justice Department was being even-handed in its treatment with former President Trump and with President Biden. And President Trump has been calling out what he called a two-tier justice system, but some Democrats are now accusing Republicans of spreading propaganda about President Biden's mental acuity. Watch. He's fine. All this right-wing propaganda that his mental acuity has declined is wrong. He's going to win the election because he has a great record. He willfully stole gigantic numbers of classified documents, willful. But because of his condition mentally, is this guy going to make it to the starting gate, seriously? 
A poll released on Tuesday by Reuters shows that more than half of Americans think that President Biden got special treatment as the president for not getting charged for his handling of classified documents. Republicans are also reportedly trying to get special counsel Robert Hur to testify about his report on Biden. The White House, meanwhile, has not ruled out releasing a redacted version of the transcript of Biden's interview with her, saying his lawyers are looking into it. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. Giving states more power to defend themselves, a new bill introduced today would codify states' rights to secure the southern border. This as Georgia's governor prepares to send more resources to Texas. NTD's Arian Pazdar has a border update. Florida Representative Matt Gates on Tuesday introduced the State Border Security Act. The bill would prohibit the federal government from removing any fencing set up by state governments within 25 miles of the southern border. This comes in response to the Supreme Court last month allowing the Biden administration to remove razor wire installed by Texas. Gates says that since the Biden administration refuses to take action, Congress must empower states to defend themselves. Meanwhile, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp made a major border announcement today. We have no choice, no choice but to step in. Therefore, I'm announcing today that in addition to the Georgia Guardsmen already stationed at the border, we will send reinforcements to Texas this spring who will assist with the construction of a Ford command post on the border with Mexico. Now, the governor says the group of soldiers will include those with mechanical and engineering skills. His announcement comes after state lawmakers passed multiple resolutions condemning President Biden's border policy. The lawmakers say they're backing the governor's plan to support Texas. Georgia is at least the third Republican-led state where lawmakers have introduced resolutions to support Texas Governor Greg Abbott after Oklahoma and Tennessee. And lastly, illegal immigration continues having a real-life impact in cities across the U.S. Denver is cutting services at its DMV offices and reducing parks and recreation programs. That's to offset the cost of caring for illegal immigrants. The mayor's announcement is now making headlines. This is a plan for shared sacrifice. This is what good people do in hard situations as you try to manage a way to serve all of your values. We have to find a way to deliver shared sacrifice to try to manage those values in the road ahead. A congressional candidate commented, saying they're calling it shared sacrifice. Sounds like communism. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. This evening, House Republicans are launching a second attempt to impeach DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This after a failure to impeach him last week due to three Republican defectors. Can they pull it off tonight? NTD's Melina Weisscup reports. Republicans are eager to redeem themselves after failed back-to-back -back votes last week. One on an Israel aid package, the other on the DHS Secretary's impeachment. The slim majority is now kicking off their week by holding a second vote to oust Mayorkas. Undeterred, House Speaker Mike Johnson recently vowed that this time they'll have the votes. Mayorkas needs to be held accountable. The Biden administration needs to be held accountable. And we will pass those articles of impeachment. Uh, we'll, we'll do it on the next round. The vote count has changed today because Majority Leader Steve Scalise is back in town. He's returning after undergoing blood cancer treatment. Now with Scalise's vote this evening, Republicans will just barely be able to pass this impeachment, even with those three Republican defectors, Congressman Gallagher, McClintock, and Ken Buck. Democrats, meanwhile, are unified in opposition, calling it a political hit job and a waste of time. What does the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas have to do with fixing our broken immigration system 
and addressing the challenges at the border. Absolutely nothing. And this strong Democrat opposition means it will go nowhere in the Democrat-controlled Senate. But the congressman leading the effort, chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, Mark Green, recently told me he still thinks it's worth it. You can't have someone just totally disregard the separate but equal branch of government. I mean, it just you can't do that. So again, if it was a Republican, I'd do the same thing. And whether it passes or succeeds in the Senate or not, I have a duty to do what's right. That second vote is set for 6.30 p.m. tonight. At the very least, it will show where House Republicans stand on the issue and give them a campaign talking point heading into the 2024 elections. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A congressional district in New York is holding a special election today. The seat has been vacant since Congress expelled former Representative George Santos. You know what's amazing? It just took me back. 30 years. That little Mazi from a village in Ethiopia running for Congress and voting for myself. This is the American dream. It was very, very emotional, very special, and just God bless America. New York's third congressional district covers parts of Long Island close to New York City. The race could have major implications for several reasons. On the Democratic side is Tom Swazi, who represented the district until 2022. On the Republican side, there is Mazi Pillip, a Nassau County legislator. Analysts predict a close race. The results could also be a bellwether for the battle for the House this November. And given Republicans' razor-thin majority losing the race could give them even less leverage in the House. There are also concerns that the winter storm could dampen voter turnout. Both candidates are urging voters to go to the polls and not to allow the storm to get in the way. Polls close at 9 p.m. tonight. Turning now into the Israel-Hamas war, Israel Defense Forces are preparing to advance into Rafah. At the same time, negotiations are underway for a hostage and ceasefire deal. Israel's top spy chief was in Cairo, Egypt on Tuesday to continue ceasefire and hostage talks. Negotiators from Qatar, the United States and Egypt were present, including CIA director Bill Burns. A senior Egyptian official said mediators have achieved what he described as relatively significant progress. Hamas says it considers the next 24 hours of the negotiations as critical. The terrorist group said they will send a delegation to Cairo if current talks progress further. The leader of Lebanon's Hezbollah terrorist group said they would halt attacks on Israel if a ceasefire is reached. When there is a ceasefire in Gaza, we will stop in the south. And when the Israeli army conducts any activity, we will resume based on the rules of engagement. Israel has proposed a two-month ceasefire. Hostages would be freed in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israel. Hamas, on the other hand, proposed a four-and-a-half-month ceasefire. It would require Israel to withdraw from Gaza and end the war. This negotiation comes as the Israeli military prepares to go into the city of Rafah. The Israel Defense Forces said they have not yet submitted an evacuation plan to the government. The Biden administration and the United Nations have expressed concerns that the military operations in Rafah would create disasters for Palestinian civilians. 
Israel said it will draw up an evacuation plan for civilians and defended its need to conduct military operations in Rafah. Also on Tuesday, the Israeli military said they obtained security camera footage showing Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. He was seen inside a tunnel below the city of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza alongside his family. It's unclear when the video was taken. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Russia is allegedly preparing for a direct conflict with NATO within the next decade. The chief of Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service today said Russia is choosing a path of long-term confrontation with NATO. He pointed to how Russia plans to double the number of forces stationed along its border next to NATO countries. But the Estonian official says a military attack by Russia is highly unlikely in the short term because Russia has to keep troops in Ukraine. A growing number of Western officials have warned of a military threat from Russia. Some Western leaders want to place NATO forces along the border with Russia to match the Kremlin's buildup. Coming up, former President Trump wants a leadership shakeup at the Republican National Committee. Our guest says it'll be good for the party. Hear his analysis of the RNC. And where are the missing financial records? A defense attorney in the Georgia RICO case says she has evidence that two invoices were paid. But Fulton County hasn't produced them. How will this impact Willis's defense to allegations of impropriety? And an airplane door vanishes mid-air over Buffalo, New York. Fortunately, the plane made a safe, if sudden, landing. What happened in the skies? We'll find out in just a moment. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Some breaking news. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is out of the hospital. Again, he was being treated for a bladder issue. He was expected to be back to work today despite his ongoing health issues. Former President Trump has announced that he's endorsing Michael Watley to lead the Republican National Committee. Trump is also backing his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, to be co-chair. Joining us now to react to Trump's endorsements, we have Lieutenant Stephen Rogers. He's a former presidential campaign advisor and a former Republican gubernatorial candidate for New Jersey. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Now, former President Trump has endorsed North Carolina GOP Chair Michael Watley to succeed RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel. Now, he's also showing support for his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, as co-chairwoman. What do you make of this endorsement from Trump? I think it's great. Look, uh, President Trump is uh, obviously leading the Republican uh, Party here in the 21st century. Uh, he has the support of the American people. And change is good. It's like, uh, look, I believe in term limits. I believe that after a certain number of years, a person in public office should leave. And I did. I saved two terms as a city councilman, so I, I, I walked the talk. Uh, but uh, uh, seeing this uh, endorsement of new people in the Republican National Committee leading the way, I think is very, very good for the party and for the country. Now, former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, also conservative activist Charlie Kirk, and former presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy are all currently blaming the current RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, for 
how the GOP's political party has been struggling in the past elections. Why do you think so many Republicans feel there needs to be change in the RNC? Well, I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, look, they probably have done, uh, Ronald McDaniel probably did the best she could, but it wasn't good enough and isn't good enough moving forward. The RNC has lost touch with the uh, Main Street USA. And by the way, it's not just the RNC. Uh, you know, that's where they begin in leadership, but it goes down to each state uh, Republican Party organization, down to the local level. Uh, I've been around the country, and I remember uh, just about a year ago, I'm in certain states, and guess who's at high schools watching seniors graduate? The Democrat Party. They're actually getting names of kids that they could register to vote moving forward. Uh, the RNC has no vision. It hasn't uh, applied the skills and talents of all the people they have in that party to do exactly what we need to do is to increase our members and, uh, in effect, increase the voter rolls and increase our representation in government. Now, the Associated Press is saying about Trump's endorsement, quote, to be clear, this is not normal, adding that Trump has yet to secure the GOP's nom presidential nomination. And also he and current chair Ronald McDaniel last week privately agreed that no major changes would take place until after South Carolina's February 24th primary. What do you make of all of this? Well, I would ask the AP, what is normal these days? Nothing is normal these days. Everything is changing. Uh, it's fluid. Uh, look, uh, uh, one thing I like about President Donald Trump, people may disagree with, with his methods, uh, maybe the way he does things, but he really displays leadership. And I admire that in anybody. Get out in front, do what you've got to do, and get the job done. There'll always be negatrons. There'll always be those who have something critical to say. Those are the ones usually who don't have solutions. All they do is complain. But the American people are watching leadership in action. I believe the Republicans in mass like to see these changes take place, and they're going to back the president, that is Donald Trump, and back the new RNC leadership once they're in office. Now, Trump also said, quote, the RNC must be a good partner in the presidential election. How do you see this impacting this year's election? Well, he used the good words. He, they must be a partner, meaning that they all have to back the candidates who are running for office. Uh, like I've been on your broadcast a lot, and I always point to the picture of the guy behind me, Ronald Reagan, you know, uh, go and work together, unify the party, put all your differences away. And that's what President Trump is saying. Let's do that so that we will have profound impact on the party moving into general election and then profound impact on the United States of America once the president is reelected and our Congress and Senate are elected and take control. Lieutenant Stephen Rogers, thank you so much for your time. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you. In two days, a hearing in Fulton County, Georgia, is expected to reveal if two Trump RICO case prosecutors are financially benefiting from the case. But a defense attorney says the county and the district attorney's office haven't turned over crucial financial records. NTD's legal correspondent has more on the potential impact of that, as well as other Trump case updates. Judge Scott McAfee, who's presiding over the Trump-Georgia RICO case, has decided to move forward with an evidentiary hearing on Thursday, despite missing financial documents. The missing documents could pose another hurdle for District Attorney Fonnie Willis to overcome and may raise more questions about whether she is abusing county funds. A defense attorney representing defendant Michael Roman said in a hearing Monday that the DA's office and Fulton County haven't turned over several records requested. For example, as far as that they've given us everything they have, 
They have not. Um, as far as the first bullet point, we do not have invoice number 22 or 25. It's not been attached to anybody's pleadings. It's not anywhere, any, any place. Okay, the attorney is so seeking no. evidence that would show that top prosecutor Nathan Wade, who's in a romantic relationship with Willis, was paid a higher salary than the other prosecutors working on the case. Willis has said all of the prosecutors were paid the same salary. But The Guardian reports that records released by her office to date show that Wade has billed more than half a million dollars to the county for work on the case. When Judge McAfee pressed the DA's attorney, Sandy Monroe, for an explanation about the missing invoices, this happened. So, Ms. Monroe, is invoice 22 or 25 something that's in the possession of Fulton County? The judge then asked who would have those invoices, and the county records custodian said this. The district attorney, and we'll follow up with our client, but it's our understanding that they provided the records they do have. I'm, I'm not sure what MR25 not be a part of those records. Wade's salary has been called into question as part of Roman's claims that Willis is financially benefiting from the sprawling RICO indictment filed against Trump and 18 other defendants. He alleges that Wade is using his county earnings to take Willis on lavish vacations. We have quite a few documentations that we have attached to filings, and we have more that we intend to present at the hearing in this case to show that she did receive a lot of benefit, a lot of financial benefit in the forms of different trips, um, plane tickets, hotel rooms, Ubers, dinners, things like that. The judge said a county representative would have to testify on Thursday about the missing records. At the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Roberts gave special counsel Jack Smith one week to respond to Trump's request to delay the election interference trial. Trump is seeking more time to appeal a unanimous appellate court decision denying his claim of presidential immunity. According to a court docket, Smith must respond by Tuesday at 5 p.m. And in New York, Trump is expected to attend a hearing Thursday in the Stormy Daniels hush money indictment brought against him. The court will address Trump's motions to dismiss the case. If the motions are denied, the trial in this 34-count felony case could begin as early as March 25th. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Authorities are on the hunt for a missing aircraft part. That's after a small plane lost a door mid-flight over Buffalo, New York last night. The single-engine Diamond DA-40 with two people on board reported losing its left rear passenger door while flying over Buffalo. In a distress call to air traffic control, the pilot was recorded saying, we have an emergency, we're heading back. Later clarifying, we lost our rear door. The aircraft made an emergency return to Buffalo Niagara International Airport, landing without further incident. There were no injuries or property damage reported. Local police and the Federal Aviation Administration are investigating. Diamond Aircraft is based in Austria and specializes in aviation aircraft and motor gliders. It became a branch of China's Wangfen Aviation in 2017. Coming up, is the foreign aid package worth the price tag? Our guest says the Senate is just throwing money at problems without providing a strategy. Here are his reactions to the package. A new TikTok trend, getting fired. Not as dangerous as the choking challenge, but dangerous for a different reason. We explain why after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The Senate passed a foreign aid package with 22 Republicans in support. It would provide $60 billion of aid to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, and no provisions on the southern border. A winter storm dumped over six inches of snow on parts of the northeast, including New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. The weather conditions left thousands without power and hundreds of flights canceled. A congressional district in New York state is holding a special election today to replace George Santos. It's expected to be a close race between Democrat Tom Swayze and Republican Mozzie Pillip. Congressman Matt Gates introduced a bill that would prohibit the federal government from removing any fences set up by state governments at the southern border. And later tonight, the House will vote for a second time on a resolution to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Hostage and ceasefire negotiations for the Israel-Hamas war resumed in Egypt. Israel's spy chief, CIA Director Bill Burns, and officials from Egypt and Qatar were present. Joining us now to share his thoughts on the foreign aid package, we have Darren Gobb. He's a retired lieutenant colonel and international military strategist. Darren okay. Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. Well, thank you. It's always a pleasure to join you. Now, Republican senators who supported this foreign aid bill argue that it is needed to maintain the United States' international standing as a guardian of Western-style democracy. This is against threats posed by authoritarian regimes. What do you make of that argument? Well, I go back to the beginning and say that uh, if it wasn't for the foreign policies that got put back into place, which mirror what... Uh, you know, Obama was doing during his administration, then we wouldn't be here and probably having this debate in the first place. So I, I think that uh, as you as we were talking about before, that we're in some ways we're kind of letting the uh, we're closing the barn doors after everything's already out into the open. So I'm concerned about the fact that we have a Senate that seems to use the strategy that if there's a problem, throw money at it. Let's not provide any strategy, any analysis. And and by the way, let's make sure that we don't see where that money actually goes, because we know it's going into the hands of oligarchs who are using it to further their own and not necessarily achieve victory in Ukraine or anywhere else. Now, there's a skepticism around whether or not this bill would pass in the House. What happens if this doesn't pass in the House? What would that mean on the global stage? Would that actually be bad for America? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I think it's what it's going to show is that we've got a House that's got a different attitude towards just throwing our money away. And they're actually looking for results. And again, if we don't have a strategy, we have zero plan behind what we're doing with this money and with the material that's tied to it. Then, unfortunately, as I have seen through my years of service, often America's solution to, to certain problems is just to continue to throw more money at it and never to develop a bigger plan for how it's used and be able to measure whether or not you're effective at all in the first place. Now, zooming out, American allies around the world already seem to be preparing for a potential second Trump term. We have French President Emmanuel Macron's recent verdict saying America's first priority is itself. Now, how do you read Trump's rhetoric versus his record under his presidency when it comes to foreign affairs? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is take those two separately. And so it's a, it's a fair argument to say that his rhetoric is not always uh, the best in how he phrases things and how he tells his stories. But uh, the record is pretty simple. 
Let's go back to the day before Biden took office. What did you have? Well, you didn't have a war in Ukraine. You didn't have Hamas coming across the Israeli border murdering people. You didn't have the acceleration of Chinese authoritarianism threatening a lot of the Pacific region. And you didn't have a border that was being, you know, I guess, you know, eight to 10 million have people coming across that border. So if you stick to the results and not worry about the personalities and how certain things are said, the results are pretty obvious. Now, I may phrase it differently than Trump, but you know, it's, it's pretty easy to say what the world looked like four years ago. Now, when it comes to the border crisis or the war in Ukraine or even the war in the Middle East, when Trump is asked about it, he always says that this wouldn't have happened under his presidency. But given that it has happened, what does that mean for Trump's second term if he does become president? How would he deal with all of these issues? Well, I think he would continue to push that NATO needs to continue to fund their own self-defense. If, if all these countries are truly worried about Putin expanding the conflict beyond Ukraine, then they need to show that in how they're spending. There has been some improvement, that's for sure. We don't I want to ignore that fact. I think he'll continue down that road. But he's going to have to deal now with the fact that uh, Russia's about to win this war in Ukraine. Therefore, what does Ukraine look like? And how can we be a positive part of that now instead of actually, unfortunately, being a big part of the reason why it occurred in the first place? We could have stopped the war in Ukraine with a simple answer of saying we would not allow Ukraine in NATO with our vote. Darren Gobb, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Nikki Haley is the only candidate standing in the way of a rematch between Trump and incumbent President Biden. But if the former governor loses in her home state in the fast approaching primary, it could mean the end of her campaign. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. Former President Donald Trump will likely receive the Republican nomination for president, but his last remaining opponent is refusing to step aside. Conservative publisher Jeff Webb believes her campaign is already over. What is Nikki Haley's strategy, and does she have a path to the nomination going forward? To me, the only strategy it could be is that she's really planning that you know some, Trump may somehow be disqualified through legal means or whatever. Um, I don't think there's any way that she, if Trump stays in the race, he's allowed to stay in, in, the prim, in the primaries, that she ends up beating him. Haley has said she plans to stay in the race through Super Tuesday on March 5th, but Webb says her campaign likely won't last that long. South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster, Senator and former candidate for the nomination Tim Scott, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, and other political leaders in the state have endorsed Trump. She's gonna get her clock cleaned in her home state here uh, shortly. Then you're looking at Super Tuesday. All the polls show Trump way up and all, and all those. There is, no, there is no classical strategic approach to a path that works. Haley has also questioned Trump's mental fitness as well as Biden's as part of her campaign. How might the special counsel's report on Biden's handling of classified documents impact Haley's strategy? I don't know if how direct or how subtle it will be. She's going to try to tie the question of Trump's age uh, to, you know, what, what, how, how Biden was described by the special counsel, which uh, to most people should be frightening. Haley has pitched herself as better equipped to beat President Biden in the general election, but she'll have to court enough independence without alienating Trump supporters if she gets the Republican nomination. 
I mean, there are a certain percentage of people who are never going to vote for Donald Trump, whether they can give you a great reason and, or, or it's tied to any kind of policy. It's more personal. They're just not going to. Will she bring some of those people, uh, the more moderate, quote, moderate uh, uh, voters? Possibly. But I think that will be offset by the loss of the, uh, the more conservative base. Haley and Trump will compete for South Carolina's 50 delegates on February 24th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. There's a new TikTok trend getting fired. More and more Gen Zers are hitting the record button when their employers fire them online. NTD's Christina Kim explains why that's not a great idea. I got fired. A new TikTok trend. More and more Gen Zers are filming themselves getting fired. They had this new girl from our competitor come in and fire me. Their manager is becoming social media stars overnight for the wrong reasons. Experts say it's happening across every industry. When you film your firing, you prevent your hiring. Think about it. Who is going to want to bring this individual into their organization when you can see that they attempted to embarrass, demean, or degrade their former employer? You don't invite a wolf into a hen house. Evan Nearman is the CEO of the PR firm Red Banyan. He says if the company ever had to let a person go, it would have to worry about that person recording his or her firing. Nearman believes anyone who films themselves in that situation will experience long-term negative consequences. I disagree that my performance hasn't been, um, I haven't met performance expectations. One of the most prominent firings was Cloudflare's firing of Brittany Peach. It just doesn't make any sense that you guys have still not been able to give me a reason why I'm being let go. The 27-year-old Peach told Wall Street Journal she doesn't regret anything. NTD reached out to her, but we haven't heard back before airtime. PR experts say managers should follow a script when letting people go, and never to go off that script, and especially not to go into a heated back and forth. In this day and age, you have to safely assume that everything is being recorded. Now with all of these AI-powered uh, platforms, anything you say or do is probably being recorded as we speak. Nearman suggests having these sensitive discussions in person as opposed to online. That way, it can't be filmed. Christina Kim, NTD News. A federal judge temporarily blocks an Ohio law seeking to regulate kids' access to social media. The judge says the law is likely unconstitutional. An emergency order was issued last month, stopping the law from going into effect. The legislation would have required social media platforms to get parental consent before kids under 16 could create accounts. On Monday, the judge said the law is breathtakingly blunt in trying to achieve its goals. He said it's an untargeted approach, as parents must only give one-time approval for creating an account. He said under the law, parents and platforms are not required to protect against any of the specific dangers social media might pose. Coming up, investors are losing confidence in China, moving it into the alternative investment category. Funds are being withdrawn from Chinese stocks and bonds. In the NFL, the Super Bowl got some super ratings. As a record number of viewers tuned in, Dave Martin joins us to discuss... Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Global investors are increasingly losing confidence in China 
and the price of those Valentine's Day chocolate treats will cost you. Here's NTD's Don Ma with today's business brief. U.S. consumer prices increased more than expected in January, and this is amid rises in the cost of shelter and health care. But as well, the pickup in inflation likely does not change expectations that the Federal Reserve will start cutting interest rates in the first half of this year. The CPI increased 0.3% last month. This is a little bit higher than what it was in December, according to the Labor Department's latest report on Tuesday. Now, in the months through January, the CPI increased 3.1%. This is a bit lower compared to December's year-over-year comparison. But this number is still higher than what some economists had been expecting. And moving on, investors of all kinds seems like are losing confidence in China as it has slipped into the alternative investment category. Data reveals people are pulling money out of the world's second largest economy. And exposure to Chinese stocks in December last year was down. Now, alternative investments are typically outside of traditional stocks and are often riskier, but appealing to diversify. This has been evident from global capital flow trends. A recent study of public pension and wealth funds managers found not one had a positive outlook for China's economy or saw higher relative returns there. And Valentine's Day tomorrow, but cocoa prices are surging so high, even the biggest chocolate makers are struggling to stay profitable. And that doesn't bode well for your wallet this Valentine's Day. Sugar, labor, and other factors have also gotten pricier. Hershey said last week that it would cut 5% of its workforce after historic cocoa prices and inflation where consumers dampened fourth quarter earnings. And other chocolate companies are feeling the pinch too as well. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, the TV ratings have already come out on the Super Bowl, and they're the highest ever, more than 120 million viewers. What do you think is behind this? Yeah, well, for one, they haven't always counted streaming platforms. That's, that was only a few million this year. CBS's broadcast loan was actually 120 million. That's the highest figure in TV history. I'm sure a big part of that was, you know, one, star power on both teams, but two, how close this game was. I mean, this was just the second Super Bowl ever to go to overtime. You know, actually, there was about a 15-year period in the 80s and 90s when the league was lopsided. Multiple juggernauts in the NFC that routinely overpowered their AFC foes in the big game. You had, like, semi-dynasties, almost like San Francisco, Dallas, Washington, New York, that regularly blew out whatever AFC team made it to the Super Bowl. Buffalo and Denver were their most common punching bags. And the Super Bowl, for a time, was this anticlimactic event ratings suffered because of it. Now, there's a lot more balance between the two conferences right now. I think we got the matchup everyone wanted to see. The ratings seemed to back that up. Plus, Taylor Swift was there, so you had that going on, too. I was wondering if that was going to come up. Now, during the Super Bowl, there was a commercial for Dove in support of women's sports that Vivek Ramaswamy was critical of. What was his issue with it? Yeah, he was pointing out Dove's hypocrisy of trying to support girls in women's sports while simultaneously celebrating men coming in and competing in women's sports as transgender athletes. Specifically, he reacted to Dove's ad saying, quote, Dove feigned concern that 45% of girls quit sports by age 14 in its sanctimonious ad last night. Yet Dove also goes out of its way to publicly celebrate men competing in women's sports. Now, he's probably referring to the 2021 Tokyo Olympics where transgender weightlifter Laurel Hubbard of New Zealand competed in the women's competition. She was the first or he, whatever, was the first transgender athlete ever in the Olympics. 
Uh, Dove at the time put out this big celebratory tweet that drew plenty of ire from both men and women, as did Hubbard's inclusion really in the first place. Many think, of course, women's sports should only include women and it's unfair to let men come in and take away their opportunities. I think Grandma Swami was just trying to point out the hypocrisy there of trying to think both sides. Well, now another one of those Super Bowl commercials, the star-studded Dunkin' Donuts ad has an interesting offer related to the ad. What are they offering fans? Yeah, the chance to look uh, like Ben Affleck in the commercial. You know, USA Today ranked the 59 Super Bowl commercials. The Dunkin' one came in at number two, just behind State Farm's hilarious commercial with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were both very funny, I thought. Anyway, the Dunkin' one had Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and Tom Brady in these matching band boy tracksuit outfits for the fictional band, The Dunkings. Now, those tracksuits, like the ones they had on, are available for purchase on shopduncan.com for 60 bucks a piece. So you too can look as cool as they did. Now the commercial also starred an embarrassed acting Jennifer Lopez who hilariously kicks uh, Affleck out of the audition while inviting Tom Brady to stay behind. Well, now switching gears here in college football, ESPN has reportedly extended their deal to air the new 12 team playoffs. But one issue still to be decided is how many automatic bids will be. Now wasn't it already decided there would be six? Yeah, but that was before the demise of the Pac-12 this last summer. Originally, the thinking was that the six highest-ranked conference champions would receive automatic bids, plus six at-large selections. Now, that would have pretty much guaranteed the winners of the so-called Power Five conferences would get in, plus at least one team from outside the Power Five, known as the Group of Five. Typically, those are smaller schools, but they don't have the, near the same TV revenue. Then this summer, one of those power conferences, the Pac-12, which had already lost UCLA and USC, their flagship schools really, to the Big Ten, lost everyone else too except for Oregon State and Washington State. Those two failed to gain an invite to the remaining power four conferences. Now the Pac-12 may continue in name, but their status as a so-called power conference probably won't. There are plenty in charge who then don't want two automatic bids going outside the power conferences. Uh, they'd prefer five with seven at-large selections, but that still hasn't been voted on yet. So it's still in flux at this point. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.